Good morning. Y'all awake? Okay, we'll try to keep things like that. I want to find your Bibles, uh, Luke chapter 13 a while. So there was an old grizzled trucker sitting in a diner eating a piece of pie. And uh, there's hardly anybody else in the diner and in through the door walks three big burly biker dudes. Sleeveless leather vests, gang colors on the back, full sleeve tats up and down both arms. And for whatever reason, they, uh, they got this trucker in their sights and the first guy walked over and he stubbed out his lit cigarette into the man's pie. He walked away laughing. The second guy uh, spit in the guy's milk and walked away. And the third guy flipped the plate of pie upside down and smashed it on the table. And after each event, the trucker would kind of look up at the guy and not have any response, look down at his uh, plate. And this occurred three times. And these guys sit down bar stools and they're elbowing each other and mocking this, this guy. And and the trucker throws a few dollars on the table to take care of the, his bill. He walks outside, out the door. And the waitress has been watching all of this. She comes over to take the three bikers' order. She said, what can I get for you boys? And they're still having a good time at the trucker's expense. And they say, you see that guy out there? He's not much of a man, is he? Ha, ha, ha. And she said, no. He's not much of a driver either. He just rolled over three Harleys out in the parking lot. When I was a kid, I, I, uh, I was a little, always a little sky in my class until I got to high school, and I uh, put up with a lot of bullying. And from early on, early on in my life, I loved books or movies or stories that had the little guy get even with the big guy. And I think for most of us, that's, that's true. We like when the bad guys get what's coming to them. We think what goes around comes around. That's karma. What goes around comes around. The bad person gets bad things, bad things happen to them. Now, the idea of karma comes out of Buddhism, <clears throat> excuse me, and Hinduism. And for example, the Buddha said, you harm yourself as dust thrown against the wind comes back to the thrower. You harm yourself as dust thrown against the wind comes back to the thrower. Now, what's interesting is most Americans are not a Buddhist or Hindu in any way, shape, or form. And yet many, many Americans believe that bad people get bad, have bad things happen to them and good people have good things happen to them. Now, some of you have been following, I assume, following the Me Too campaign that has gotten a lot of legs in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein affair and all the... Um, actors and producers and congressmen that are um, being identified as, as sexual predators. And it's interesting, uh, one of the things that's happened in the wake of that is some people are blaming the victim, saying, you kind of got what you deserved. Um, maybe you led a guy on or something like that. And there's a woman wrote an article in The Atlantic about a year and a half ago on why it is that some people blame victims for what they do. This was all before the big Me Too campaign. And she tried to make the argument that in the West, 
we tend to do that more than other places do. Uh, because we tend to see the world uh, very black and white. We tend to see the world as just. And so, certainly, bad people have bad things happen to them and good people have good things happen to them. <clears throat> I don't read the whole article, but it would be interesting to know whether or not she um, credits the Christian worldview in the West for that. Because after all, isn't it true that we see the world as just in that God is a just God overseeing a just world and certainly he's going to right all wrongs. Kaylee Roberts was the uh, author of that article in the Atlantic magazine. And she says, in other cultures where sometimes because of war or poverty or maybe sometimes just even because of a strong threat of fatalism in the culture, it's a lot better recognized that sometimes bad things happen to good people. But as a general rule, Americans have a hard time with the idea that bad things happen to good people. And so holding victims responsible for their misfortune is partly a way to avoid admitting that, that something just as unthinkable could happen to you even if you do everything right. In other words, if you're in a culture where there's a lot of poverty and if you're in a culture where there's a war, uh, and our friends from the Congo here, Congo has been perpetually in a war state for how many decades? If you're in a place where things don't typically go right, in fact, a lot of your friends and you have trouble just finding food for today's meal, one meal. You have less of a sense of that good things always happen to good people and bad things always happen to bad people. I wonder how you evaluate things that happen to you. If you get a doctor's report back with a positive finding, yes, cancer. If your spouse walks out on you, if you flunk algebra or miss the shot at the buzzer or one of your kids hasn't spoken to you for three years, is your conclusion that God must hate me. There's apparently something I've done. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something that I've done that this is now payback from God. Is that how you think about the world? That it is just in that way. That bad people get punished, the good people get rewarded. And if that's how you think about the world, what would you conclude about a woman like Dallas Combs? <clears throat> Dallas Combs was a 79-year-old woman in Kentucky who two weeks ago was killed when a tornado raced through. So would you conclude that Dallas must be a bad person because of this bad thing that has happened to her? And conversely, if you got the test report back and it said negative, no cancer, would you conclude that you somehow deserve that diagnosis? And, and conversely, the person who gets a positive test report back, that they deserve that. Luke chapter 13. Is that what the Bible claims about God and his world? Or is it just what karma claims? Verse 1, <clears throat> Jesus speaking. 
most of these verses. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Now, some of your texts might say he mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. That is the um, explicit text in the Greek. Not sure if he actually did that, if it's simply saying, you know, uh, their blood was there, the offering blood was there. Jesus asked this question. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Let's pray together. God, we do worship you and acknowledge that you are the sovereign God of the universe. There's nothing that was made that you didn't make. There's nothing that runs that you don't keep running. There's nothing occurs that occurs that surprises you and that you didn't have your hand in. We acknowledge you as the almighty, the sovereign God of the universe. Having acknowledge that we confess that we're not always sure how it is that you go about doing the things you do how it is that you decide to do this and not do that and we pray this morning just for the mind of Christ for the understanding mediated through the Holy Spirit not just um, not an understanding that is mediated through what we um, what our friends think or what we've been taught growing up not what the culture kind of implies when it comes to what's deserved and what's not, but understanding from you how you order your world and the things that you're saying in how you order your world. Pray that the Spirit would speak to us this morning through the Word of God. And also pray that the enemy would not speak to us. We'd, he'd be silent, um, that we would not be able to be unduly influenced by his um, pushing or prodding us this way or that. Uh, we just want to say thank you as we have sung that incredible song, the mercy tree, for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses uh, us from unrighteousness. We're so grateful that he came and stooped in such a way to serve people like us. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> now what um, I think is true for every one of us and true for everyone, period, is that we look at the things that happen, good and bad, in our lives. We analyze those things and we draw conclusions about what those things mean. I'm talking specifically this morning about bad things that happen to us. I'm going to use words like tragedy and calamity uh, in a very general sense. Um, when I say tragedy and calamity, it's a very big umbrella. It includes things like hurricanes and tornadoes. 
It includes things like car crashes and airplane crashes. It includes things like diagnosis of diabetes, cancer. It includes things like broken marriages and broken relationships. Everything that you might think of as bad coming into your life. How do you analyze what that means? And I'm going to argue this morning that in general, we tend to analyze tragedies in ways that either make them say too much or not enough. We look at the bad things that occur to us and we make them say things, we either make them say too much or not enough. And here's what I mean. In making them say too much, we are essentially saying that bad people suffer bad things here and now. Bad people suffer bad things here and now. And apparently these people that were with Jesus on this, um, on this day, they'd either watched the, the news that morning or they'd been on their iPads and looking at the news that was taking place in their communities and the internet and they're talking about some things that are bad that are happening in, the, in their world. And so Pilate comes along and he's, for whatever reason, he's murdering people in the temple. What a horrific sacrilege. That he would go to a house of worship, people who are there to offer their sacrifices to God and pray to God, and he murders them. Maybe he had a grudge against them, maybe he was trying to make a point, who knows, but he murders them. And then there's 18 people that are crushed by a falling building up at Siloam. Don't know if the thing was under construction and uh, wasn't finished yet and, and kind of shaky. Don't know if it had gotten old and fallen over. But Jesus looks at both of these news events and he asks the question that apparently his hearers are asking. And that is, is this God's judgment on these particular people? It was the same kind of thing that Jesus' disciples were asking him about in John chapter 9 when they see this man who had been born blind and the instinctive question they need answered is who sinned to cause this man to be born blind? Him or his parents? The, the, the craziness of the question seemed to have escaped them. How, how could this man have somehow sinned before he was born and be judged in this way? This is the kind of question, this is the understanding that Jewish people had in general. They too had an understanding of a just world in the sense of, in the definition of, a world where God makes everything right here. And so again, bad people have bad things happen to them, good people have good things happen to them. And this is what I mean by saying that we're concluding by virtue of what happens to us, making those tragedies say too much. The hearers that Jesus was talking to had concluded that God had punished these people. Their deaths were God's punishment. And Jesus denies that that's the case. He says that in verse 3. He says that in verse uh, 5 after he's repeated, recounted the stories. Verse 2, is that why they suffered? Are they worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Not at all. Verse 4, these people who were killed by the falling tower, were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Verse 5, no. Jesus says, you're making tragedies say too much. 
Now the flip side is, in our analysis, we can make those tragedies say too little. The Christian version of this is, stuff happens. That's just the way the world is. We live in a fallen world, sin entered the world, and now bad things happen. Tsunamis kill a quarter of a million people on the other side of the globe. A hurricane kills however many people here. We lose 70 people on average a year to tornadoes in this country. It's just the way things are. Cancer, diabetes, MS, these things just show up. It's a consequence of sin. Whatever will be, will be. We live in a fallen world. Now, the non-Christian version of that is we live in a world that's random. It's just things happen by chance. And so he or she happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And this is what happened to them. That's making tragedies say too little. And so Jesus tries in this conversation he's having with the people that are gathered around scratching their heads. He's trying to help them understand what tragedies do say, what they do convey. And so when he says, no, that's not what they mean, he goes on to say, I think, what they should mean to us. No, that doesn't mean that these are horrible, horrible sinners that are worse than everybody else. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Just like the people at the temple, just like the people at the tower, unless you repent, you too will perish. He's linking, by the word too, he's linking what's taking place out there with the much bigger picture of what takes place eventually. Unless you repent, you too will perish. You see, the just right conclusion about what tragedies mean is this. Bad people will suffer bad things eventually. Bad people will suffer bad things eventually. Now we're going to redefine bad in, in just a couple of minutes, perhaps differently than what you think. But the fact of the matter is, as we look around and we see people that we know, that we consider bad people, sometimes their lives are going along just fine, thank you very much. The psalmist struggle with this. Let me take you to Psalm chapter 73. Asaph wrote this as he's looking around at uh, some of his uh, neighbors. And these are people that, that uh, don't pass muster in God's eyes or Asaph's. Bad people. And yet, man, the world just seems to be going great for them. Things seem to be going along swimmingly. But why is that? How can that be, Asaph says. There's, there's a just God who's overseeing a just universe. Beginning of verse 2. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone, for I envied the proud. And I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. By the way, do you see in this an indictment of the prosperity gospel? It's not just good and righteous people that have things go well for them. 
In fact, Asaph says, verse 6, they wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff. They speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they asked. Does the Most High even know what's happening? I mean, look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. In other words, the people are saying, where is God? Why is he not exercising justice? Why is he not making things right in his supposed just world? Sometimes things go well for bad people. And on the flip side, sometimes things go badly for good people. Little girl, two years old, uh, just a week and a half ago. Ifra Sadiq. She got away from her parents in a shoe store just outside of Atlanta. Suddenly there was a horrific noise. They went running and they find her laying under a full-length mirror in a pool of blood. Two years old, she's gone. Did she deserve what had happened? I, I, I don't care how any of us count goodness or badness. Two-year-old. And we all know two-year-olds are bad, right? Parents say amen. But she has no concept at that age yet of sin or, or her, uh, um, her obligation to God. There's no way any of us would say that she is somehow getting what she deserves. In fact, if you look down through Christian history and you see great lions of the faith, what have their lives been like? Often great persecution followed by humiliation, death, murder. And of course, the ultimate example of that, Jesus himself. No justification in his death. What's Jesus' point? That people who do not repent will reap a whirlwind unlike a tower falling on them or unlike um, a governor killing them in the temple. That there is a judgment coming in the next life. That the tragedies in this life serve to point to. Let me take you back to, just, uh, just a minute, back to Asaph's words in Psalm 73, starting at verse 17. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Now, I didn't understand their destiny because there was some sort of writing on the wall. But when he got in the presence of God, he was remi reminded, oh, that's right. This world and this life is not the end of things. I went into your sanctuary, O oh God, he's talking about the temple, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. So I want to call tragedies, calamities, 
in people's lives God's public service announcements. It's a tip-off pointing toward what will ultimately come that will make a hurricane or a falling tower or murder look like a walk in the park. What do public service announcements warn people of? That sin does have consequences. Not immediate ones, but ultimate ones. Not temporary ones, but eternal ones. They are warnings to all people, good and bad, of what's to come. Now, this is where we need to correct our definition of bad. I talk many times, and I'm sure you get tired of hearing me talk about it. That we, um, we determine bad and good based on our, usually our own, uh, ourselves as the standard of normality, right? So good people are people who are as moral as I am and a little better, maybe. And bad people are any, everybody else below that line. So it's like the, the water line here, my life, this is what's good, here and above is good, here and below is, is bad. And God doesn't Look at it that way. Part of the reason we do that is because all of us are flawed. And so we tend to compare ourselves with people who are more or less flawed than us. But God measures us by himself. Just like we measure others by ourselves, God measures us by himself, right? And God's perfect. And so Romans 3.23 says all of us have sinned and fall fall short of the glory of God or the standard of God. So in God's eyes, we're we're all bad. There's no one, again, Romans 3, there's no one who does good. There's there's no one who seeks God. There's, There's no one who's right. And yet, for the one who repents, there's glorious hope. Larry Nasser, I assume many of you are following that story, the doctor for the United States gymnast team was just sentenced about six weeks ago to 40 to 175 years in prison for sexually assaulting over 150 children and women. And the woman who first went public with his molestation uh, Rachel Den Hollander spoke to him. Now, Rachel is a, is a follower of Jesus. And she, like all the other victims, got a chance in the court to speak to Larry face to face. And when she concluded her remarks, this is what she said. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. It will be there for you. Now you imagine a woman who has been sexually assaulted by a man looking him in the eye and saying what you did is awful. But even for you, there's an offer of mercy and grace, even for you. 
And that's true of all of you and me. That even for us, there's an offer of mercy and grace. And Jesus calls upon all. He did it that day. He does it today. Repent. You might be here this morning and you're a, a, a teenager and your mom and dad love Jesus. Your f- folks have been Christians as long as you can remember. And you've grown up in the nursery of the church. You've grown up in the Sunday school of the church, the youth ministry of the church. And you're 14, 15, 16 years old. And yet, truth be told, you're kind of leaning into mom and dad's faith. Talk about kind of having mom and dad's faith. Listen, there's no such thing as having mom and dad's faith. God has no grandchildren, no nieces and nephews. He just has sons and daughters who are people of faith. And maybe if you're honest with yourself, you have not, never repented of your sin. Now, if you've been in church all that time, you should know what repentance means, but if you don't, it means to change your mind about love affair with sin. It means to turn and walk the other way, away from sin to Christ. And what's interesting is on the day that Jesus had this conversation with these people around them, there was not yet a repentance unto salvation in the way we understand it. It was a John the Baptist kind of repentance. I'm going to baptize you and you're going to turn and start doing good instead of, stop, start doing, instead of continuing to do bad. But now that Jesus has gone to the cross, there's a different kind of repentance. Imagine for a minute that all of our bodies, including Jesus, our, our human bodies, have a box, an invisible box in them. And that box is marked sin. And if you open up my box, it, it, it's full and overflowing. Maybe there's two boxes in me, maybe three, I don't know. But they're all full. And then there's a box in in me as well, another invisible box, and this one's marked goodness. And if you could open up that box in me, you would find nothing. Now, when Jesus went to the cross, if you would open up his box of sin, you would discover it was empty. Nothing in it. And if you opened up his box, mark goodness, you would find it would be full and overflowing. But on that day that Jesus went to the cross, when he died, if you'd open up that box, you would suddenly find the box marked sin was full, overflowing. In fact, there were probably many, many, many boxes that were full and overflowing. Why? Because he took all of our sins on him. And if in turn you open up his box of goodness after you repent and turn faith to Christ, you would find that his box has been emptied out of his goodness and now your box of goodness is full. 
Because unlike the day that Jesus called people to repent, that day, he's paid the price, the full price for our sins. And in the great exchange, when we repent and trust Christ, he takes upon himself all of our sins and in turn gives to us all of his righteousness so that God doesn't see us as a bad person anymore. He doesn't see us as a guilty person anymore. He sees us clothed with the goodness of Christ. And you will be, I will be, all will be welcome into heaven who have repented and trust Christ. You might be here this morning. And it's not that you're a teenager. You're visiting Keystone for whatever reason. Maybe somebody invited you to Keystone five years ago. And you never came, but maybe some things are going on in your life that you thought, oh, man, maybe it'd be good for me to go to church once. Please understand, that's why you're here. Not to check a box that you went to church, but so that you can hear a message of hope. A message of repentance, turning from, but also a message of faith, turning to the one who will save you. It's not a self-improvement program. You don't get points because you improve your life. You get better and better. You get points solely by coming as a broken man, woman, boy, or girl to the mercy tree and say, I'm gonna agree with you, God, that there's nothing in the universe that is more offensive to you than sin. I'm gonna agree with you, God, that I am a sinner. And I'm gonna agree with you, God, that only through Jesus Christ can I be made right with you. Only by turning to Christ can I be made right with you. Listen, this would be a great day for that to happen, for you to get right with Jesus Christ. At the end of the service, each Sunday, we have some folks up here in the front who are available to pray with people about whatever is going on in their lives. They're also available to talk with you about um, repenting and putting your faith to Christ, in Christ if you're not quite sure what that means. They'd be glad to pray with you. They'd be glad to answer some questions. So maybe this is the day that God's gonna say, repentance has come to your house as well. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for his call to all of us to repent. For those of us who have thanks that he would even bother with us knowing how sinful we are. And I pray for those that might be here this morning who need to repent. Maybe for the teenager who never has. Maybe for the visitor who never has. For that matter, maybe the Sunday school teacher who never has. Or the, the professing Christian wife, Christian husband that never has. They have a form of godliness, godliness but really have never repented and turned to Christ. They, they have a churchianity, but they've never really trusted Christ. Maybe this would be the day that the Holy Spirit would break through in truth and power into their lives. And that's our prayer. Breakthrough in truth and power in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.